Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to episode 20 of Purposely Podcast. Tonight's episode features Tara Arnold. You'll hear about her founder story, which was fueled by personal tragedy and grief. Tara is an incredible woman, someone I've known for a long time, um, and she set up a social enterprise called Nova Foundation, which is to help other people who've gone through baby loss. Enjoy the episode. Guest is Tara Arnold, founder of the Nova Foundation. Tara and I have known each other since I think about 2013. Welcome, Tara. Thank you. 2013? Would that be true? When you were at a charity yeah. uh, named I was at an adoption charity. Yeah, and yeah, adoption and fostering, at, and you were you, you were we and I you, were, you and I were having conversations about money, and then <laughs> the charity folded on us. Is that what happened? Yeah. That's my memory. <laughs> I'd like to point out what I had left the charity for a year and then it folded after I had left. Um, <laughs> just like to point that out. But we but definitely that... met in 2013 because I remember there was something that was going on at the charity and um, it was also when the first royal baby was being born. And I was just like, oh, this baby could just wait a few more days so then we can promote whatever it was the charity needed to promote. But when the royal baby came along, and then I remember you yeah. sent me a message saying, oh, the royal baby came along. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And because I, my memory, it's had this, the following of the charity, because you were in their fundraising team, and the following yeah. of the charity had nothing to do with Tara Arnold's ability no, to no, fundraise really or didn't. not. Just to be clear, um, my memory, having, I think, read their balance sheet at the time, they had um, a huge pension deficit that they couldn't overcome. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't, hasn't come back, as it? That adoption and fostering agency, BAF, has, has been resigned to the history books. Oh, um, <laughs> no. Um, part of them have been absorbed by Corum. Oh, Coramsfield. So um, it's yeah. Coram Bath, some elements of it and some of the projects and some of the staff were. But I think it was, um, also, yeah, they had like massive um, pension deficit, but they were really cash rich when I was there. Uh, so it's really good to know that some of their services around adoption and fostering were picked up by Coram. Um, so yeah. how, long have you, how long have you worked in the charity sector now? Oh, wow. A long time. Um, so... I think I first, my first ever job in the charity sector, it was awful. It was face-to-face fundraising when I was 18, which was a good 20 years ago now. Um, and then I kind of was always temping in um, charitable organisations. But from 2006, I want to say, yeah, um, 2006 was when I was fully committed to the charity sector. I started working at Scope and then an organisation called Livability, um, which was a disability organisation. That's quite an old organisation as well. Um, and then a small HIV charity called Positive East. Um, and then a children's disability charity called WizKids. I really jumped around around the sector quite a lot. And then Bath, where we met. Yeah. And subsequently five years at Street League, a sport for development organisation um, operates across the UK. And then I left to set up Nova Foundation. Yeah, which we'll get into. So, because mm-hmm. you you did a um, 
so in terms of you did a, a degree in arts degree and you also did a master's so but mm-hmm. I always think that's very rare to find someone who grows up wanting to be a fundraiser which um probably was that you or were you a rarity um I mean I I'm not I always wanted to work in the charity sector because I just I don't know I did a geography degree and then I did a geography master's which is really really quite um nuanced it was in cultural geography and through that you kind of learn why something happens in a particular place and my specialism was east end London and in East End London, there was lots of Victorian philanthropists and you learned about why there was so much poverty in the area, but actually what people were trying to do as well. And my focus was on disabled performers and you really learned about the, the human spirit. And through that, I started taking real interest in disability and subsequently started working for a disability organisation. So there was some kind of pathway. And when I was in my first role as an administrator, fundraising just looked really, really glamorous and and fun. And it was something that I wanted to get into. And that was what I then subsequently focused on doing. Yeah. Um, so you you were born in the East End of London? Mm-hmm. I was and in Bethnal Green, yeah. Good, good place to grow up? Um, it, it was an interesting place to go up because Bethnal Green now is not like Bethnal Green in the 80s and, and 90s. It was just it was just a bit rubbish growing up. It was always like history and heritage and culture, but it wasn't really that much to do. Um, whereas now there's, there's absolutely tons to do. And there's even things like hotels that have popped up in Bethnal Green, which just never 20 years ago there were that just wouldn't have happened but it was um, a really interesting place to grow up it was a really diverse place to grow up and that was something I really valued. It was great to bring you Tara Arnold's background story the podcast now focuses on Tara Arnold's founder story and her life-changing experience. Incredibly personal reason why you started that charity tell us about um, Nova and and what that experience brought you okay so um yeah very briefly in 2017 um my son was stillborn and it was completely soul destroying um there's actually no words to articulate how horrific that felt how catastrophic that felt and I realized at the time that there was no protocol for health services to provide aftercare support for someone that has gone through that level of trauma. There's some bereavement support, but my GP really had to fight for it. And I had an amazing GP, not everyone does. And there was no trauma support. And it took me quite a long time to realise that I was traumatised. And I did a particular form of therapy which was called somatic experiencing, which really focuses on finding resources in your own body because I was very physically affected by the loss. And I felt that there there needed to be something different. There are a lot of baby loss organisations and they're amazing. They do some really, really good things. In terms of giving people solutions and trauma solutions, that was missing. And just the area, well, in East London, um, certainly in Tower Hamlets and Newham, um, 
it had the second and third highest rate of stillbirth in in the UK. And the UK has one of the highest rates of stillbirth in developing countries, so i.e. in Europe. And that's really shocking. Like it's like Victorian England and it's just not good enough. And so I think when I went back to work, going back to work after you've experienced a trauma like that is um, interesting for everyone involved. And for a while, my heart really was in it because I thought, well, my son wouldn't have been one of the beneficiaries um, of the organisation. And so I really wanted to work to support them. But I was still going through symptoms of trauma at the time. And I thought, you know what, I, I think that I want to apply all my skills and experience into a social enterprise. So I've gone down the social enterprise route rather than the charity route just because I just wanted something a little bit different. I didn't necessarily want to, I'm very welcome to donations, but I did not want to rely on donations. I wanted to develop a service. And as there's no support services for parents that have experienced baby loss, that's pregnancy loss or neonatal death, um, there's certainly even less around, and there's virtually nothing for dads as well, which I found appalling. Um, there's not that much that's available for parents that are pregnant after a loss as well, which has, has its own. Mm? And just in terms of so the, the grief you, you experienced and, and mm. like hugely traumatic, because mm. I personally experienced some loss around that, but it because it, you know, our child didn't go full term. And to think that the, the fact that it, the process you went through heightens the grief because of the the length of the pregnancy and your son was a you know with you and you talk about him as a, you know with losing him and and you talk about his name and and you talk to your friends and family about it do you think that the um the 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 depth of your grief was mm. catastrophic for a period of time like did you how deep did it go yeah completely i mean my son was still born at 24 weeks, so it wasn't full term. Um, I'd had a 20-week scan and was told everything was fine. And I realised two, uh, maybe two weeks after that, I noticed he wasn't moving as much. And thinking about it now, I got completely gaslighted by the midwife because she was like, oh, he's small, you wouldn't necessarily feel it. And she did some monitoring, but it was li literally maybe a minute. And um, when you go through a subsequent pregnancy and you realise that monitoring is normally 40 minutes, um, the depth of my grief, it was catastrophic. The left-hand side of my body went completely numb. Um, I had no control over my hand. My nails would dig into my hand. It was Everything was on the left-hand side. Um, I would get tingles. It felt like pins and like severe pins and needles or when you've been very, very cold and your hands start to defrost. I had that sensation um, in both my arms, but predominantly my left arm. And it was because I was told the news on the left-hand side, I held my son in my left arm. The left-hand side of my body bore the brunt of the trauma. It affected me so much I couldn't remember my pin code. I couldn't even turn on a tap. Um, I had no idea that this, that, that this was, was a thing. Um, the mm. GP described it as it almost being like catharsis, where I was in so much pain it physically manifested. And quite a lot of those symptoms um, stopped the day after the funeral because it's not just that you have lost your child, you're then organising a funeral and coming to terms with I was decorating, I was planning on their nursery and now I'm planning their funeral and it's just so messed up. And you're carrying yeah. other people's yeah. grief as well. A lot of people... A lot of people were really good, actually, but some people just said the worst things to me. 
and it just made me feel worse. And you're just saying, oh, no, I, I don't have the energy to be polite. So quite often I wasn't. And I don't have any regrets about that because people said really stupid things to me. Um, and so I really want to... In your, in your website, you talk about, there's a really great article on, on the Nova website around the S word and mm-hmm. your ab- abhorrence for the S word, which is strong, right? So you had people yeah. saying, constantly saying to you, You'll, you know, be strong, you are strong, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, I hate that word. Um, I had so many people be like, oh, you're so strong because I managed to get out of bed or you're so strong because X, Y, and Z. And it made me feel like I was failing because I was able to do those things because people were like, oh, I wouldn't be able to do that. And it just created such a mountain in front of me of me feeling like I was doing too well. Um, and strong is such a, it's just such a stupid, I had so many people say it and I had to correct people and say that that term makes me feel worse. Um, I'm not strong. I am a survivor. I'm surviving and I'll take that. That's much better. Um, but yeah, I had, I spoke to my bereavement um, counsellor about it and she said, it's also what other people define as strong. And that kind of removed some of it for me in that this is other other people are wanting to because what happened was horrible and it's horrible for them to hear about it and they want to make you feel better by saying anything but I also want to make themselves feel better and and they want to make sense of it yeah because you also talk about one of the nicest things that people said to you or one text in particular which is said I'm really looking forward I think this is what they said looking forward to to seeing you and and you telling me about your son yeah as, and that really stuck with you. Um, yeah. Well, that's at least what you said in the, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, um, what I found was, especially with grief, was that I was surprised by who my support network became. So I think, like, you can kind of divide your friends and family into people that can provide practical support and people that can provide emotional support. And I was surprised by the people that, and provided emotional support and by that it meant that people that I had worked with or were in my current workplace that just completely reached out and were re- I was really surprised by who who that was um just in terms of the way they were at work like and um, maybe the office lad reached out and I was just like oh my gosh I didn't didn't expect that to happen um mm. and that was someone that I, actually someone I worked with at Bath um my friend Dan and he said um I'd love to hear about your son I mean he used the name um I'd love to hear about Buddy sometime and that just made all the difference and he only lived around the corner and we just went for a walk and that was one of the experiences that kind of helped reset me very slightly because it was someone that just could was comfortable with the grief and could could help carry it for me and with me for that short amount of time mm. and that wanted to mm. know and um yeah that really made a huge difference just knowing who because there were certainly people that made me feel a bit like a bird I wouldn't um I was completely traumatized when I went back but there were certainly people just did not know how to handle me and yeah. there were people often people had not necessarily gone through baby loss, but certainly experienced grief and they just got it. When everyone's getting really excited about Christmas and I just thought, I'll just go away. Uh, or people yeah. be like, what are you doing for Christmas? And it's like in my head, I'd be like crying while looking at a Christmas tree. Um, 
but you can't say that because society um but there were certain people i could say it to and they would laugh because they absolutely understood it um one of my friends her husband was like he um died and he was only about 34 35 at the time and she still wears her wedding ring and people like strangers when she meets them at work are just like oh you're married she's like yeah my husband's dead and she'll like find it hysterically funny and it's something that if you've gone mm. through grief like when she told me I was wetting myself laughing I thought it was hysterical but it's something that if yeah. you haven't gone through grief sounds really horrifying um so the yeah. gallows yeah, yeah. that comes along with it that was kind of that was that really did help me kinda, survive kind of helps and it's uh, you know I think grief is it kicks you in the ass right it comes yeah does it sort of cre- creeps from nowhere unexpectedly sometimes um and gets you so um a very in the very early days of grief I mean you're physically exhausted and you're mentally exhausted the physical exhaustion goes maybe after about six weeks and the mental exhaustion kind of probably six weeks after that but then there's still yeah I definitely went back to work during the anger um (laughs) the angry phase of grief but it feels like a weight it feels like swimming in a freezing cold ocean at midnight with massive waves just knocking you down and then eventually as you swim you start to see the lights on the shore and the temperature starts to become a bit more bearable and the waves yes some come along and whack you down but they're not as often and you kind of move eventually the sun comes out and you're still in the water and you still occasionally get knocked over by a wave or a riptide comes along but you're still in the shallower bit of the water and your feet will always be wet or mm. they'll always be like a bit of salt in your hair um but you're okay with that it's just learning to kind of live with the loss as well because with baby loss especially because this is my first child and even if it wasn't my first child it's still that child represented the dreams and the life I had planned with them and I don't I don't have that with them anymore the only thing that really truly healed was well because afterwards we I was too traumatized to try for a child again um and I just wanted to wait for a period of time until I didn't feel as traumatized and then I actually had a subsequent miscarriage which most people don't know about um and that just completely stamped out any hope I'd ever bring a child home. And um, that was February last year. And then the same month. So I'd left. I literally found out the day after I left work and um, to start a baby loss and, ba- and social enterprise. And um, that I'd had a miscarriage. And I just thought, I don't even know if I want to do this at this point. I just need to lick mm. my wounds. I mean, I mean, I... I was lucky in that I got pregnant in May and I had my daughter in February and she's just amazing. She she is just amazing and it's so lovely that she, you know, she's brought the sunshine back into our lives. That's but amazing. And so your first first child name? Buddy. Um, Buddy, was, yeah. Uh, and, you've, and you've had a daughter. Fantastic. Yeah, so um, with Buddy, when we were planning thinking about his name um well we had a long list of of names and buddy we discounted because we thought it's a great name for a little boy or an older man but a teenager or a a young man might not appreciate it but he never got to have that experience he never got to grow up so buddy just really represented like it's just such a sweet name and so he really Mm. wanted and it's 
we feel like we're very open in our house like we've got lots of his name is everywhere we've got um little animal symbols for him and we've got lots of i'm just looking around at him now um we've got lots of little memories for him so he's very much when people ask me if i have um do you have any other children i tell them um because i don't want to hide i'm not really i don't i couldn't really care less about other people's discomfort and because i'm the one actually lived that experience um yeah and generally people I've been quite lucky people normally have been have taken it on the chin and been really kind about it because if you're going to ask someone like a nosy question like do you have any other children you have to be prepared that uh you know one in four pregnancies yeah. in loss that people are going to yeah. but shouldn't have to lie for other people's comfort so yeah no absolutely and so did Having your daughter, um, I imagined, and and having that miscarriage was before that, but really heightened experience for you, I guess. Um, or had you kind of made peace with it? You were just like, let's just see how this goes. Like, what was that like? <laughs> I wish. Um, no, it was so we um, – I'm actually strangely – no, you develop really weird superstitions. Like, is this proper baby loss mum thing? when you go back to the hospital and so I remember the first time I went for the scan I wanted to wear like a slightly baggyish top in case I ran into anyone that I knew because I was clearly showing um and I'm actually wearing that top <laughs> that top right now um and I wore it every single uh-huh. scan since it just fell out of the wardrobe so I was like oh my maternity top I'll wear it um but it, it really isn't it's like a leather look t-shirt so it's quite trendy um but so saying trendy isn't trendy at all but anyway um no it was really quite <laughs> it was quite fraught because the miscarriage kind of destroyed any hope that I would have of having a child and so I didn't have an early scan I just had a regular scan and I went to um UCL in London who are an amazing hospital and they were completely different to the hospital I'd gone through before and they re- they bothered to read my notes and they were like we we completely understand what happened and then and we're like, we've got, I ask you a bunch of questions and I just interrupted him and said, can I just have the scan? Because I was just going out of my head. Like I could taste the adrenaline in my mouth. It's horrible. And um, the sonographer was just so reassuring and just so lovely. And I'd actually, you know, the wrestling show Glow um, on Netflix. I'd watched that the night yeah. before and it was like the Christmas special, but this is like August when we went for the scan. And I was replaying that in my head because it was a safe space. So that was I, I had some key techniques to try and keep me a bit more grounded and thinking about glow and the Christmas uh, wrestling scene was my way of feeling a bit calmer. And then the sonographer turned to me yeah. and said, everything looks beautiful. And they were the nicest words I could have ever heard, but I couldn't even bear to look at the screen. And when I did sneak, yeah, it, it just felt, too much because the last time I'd looked at a scene and well, the previous two times I'd looked at a screen had been the saddest news in the world um and so whenever I sneaked a peek I could just see my daughter like bouncing around like a little astronaut and she wasn't really really cute and then I was under consultant care and my consultant Melissa Witten was just a mate she's just incredible and I was basically going for scans every two weeks and I, I knew I was going to have a girl before I even got pregnant I just knew that the baby was going to be a girl and I think that made it slightly yeah. easier because it was very much you know this is a different baby um because my yeah. TMI but my placenta was at the front of my stomach so that meant that I couldn't necessarily feel the baby move 
and that was like a huge mm-hmm. huge um anxiety for me and um, I bet yeah. yeah and so I would quite often like they would just like do what you need to do and so I would like drink a coke and then lie on my side and play Britney <laughs> because it was like loud pop um and she would kick and dance along to that inside but I was um thankfully fast-tracked by Newham Talking Therapies to have um like support during that time but it really I mean it really makes a difference to have baby loss specific which this wasn't there was a lot of on both sides yeah developing an understanding of how to appropriately support um someone because some of the things that I said I was just like that I need to not see this woman well around the time of my 24 week scan um because that was really fraught but there were times where I was just going off my head because I couldn't I couldn't feel the baby moving because I was so in my head and the techniques of you know focus on your left foot start wiggling that just focus on any other body part and then um yeah just taking us because I was self-employed doing Nova um so I could just have a nap in the middle of the afternoon or like chill out if things got too much which was really good but there was a lot of self-care like when I look back like everything was absolutely fine with the pregnancy um every time I I was quite lucky in that most well um because the consultant is so amazing a lot of people want to see her so sometimes I was waiting up to two hours for an appointment but often the baby would just be kicking away um and I would just always focus on something there was always something really stupid well not stupid but going on in the news like there was the I don't know if you remember Wagger for Christie um when Colleen Rooney yeah, yeah. that was um that took yeah, up yeah. a lot of my headspace in the hospital because it was so ridiculous I could just focus on that and not be scared um mm-hmm. and then disgusting mm-hmm. Prince Andrew and his alleged crimes um I would focus on that and that there was quite a lot of stuff going on in the news that I could just just go on my phone and read and it's off Tottenham Court Road so we would often get it was like a really nice experience it became quite a ritual to just go to the hospital go get a pizza because I'd be like you're gonna be waiting ages get some food come back feel the baby move see her moving around developing growing dancing pouting um on screen was really magical so it it kind of rebalanced the the sad experience that I'd had and also at the, all the tra- yeah and the previous yeah, all the trauma all the trauma and the previous hospital that I'd gone to were just just rubbish um like when I had my 12 week scan I, I distinctly remember because I counted it they showed me the screen and it was 5 seconds and then turned it back and um I just thought I mean there was something that happened which meant that I got to see be alone with the screen but I just thought that's so poignant that that could have been the only five seconds I would have seen my child for because the sonographer didn't want yeah, to yeah. show me that image. But, um, yeah, so just being able to replace the um, negative experiences I'd had with really, really good hospital care. And, yeah, the birth yeah. itself was um, the build-up to it. I was just terrified. I remember I was sick because I was induced. And so I had a lot of women be like, oh, tell us about your birth plan. And I was like, well, when's your due date? And I was like, oh, I don't know, because I'm going to be induced. And you, there's always women. Men never. <laughs> men were great. I just wanted to hang out with men during that period because I just didn't open their mouths. Um, women's faces are like, screw up and can talk because I had the audacity to be yeah. induced. It's like, well, it's not your birth. Why do you care? This is my choice. This is a really empowered choice as well. Um, and then 
yeah, I was just, just, just sick all over the place. Um, but I'd also retrained oh. to be, and as part of Nova, I'd retrained to be an antenatal educator. And I'd retrained in compassionate hypnobirthing with an amazing midwife called Nicola Nelson. And she herself had experienced baby loss. And the techniques were just, they weren't, you know, you're a lot of hypnobirthing and a lot of antenatal education is like, you know, try and the baby will just float out and you'll have no pain relief. And it's like, well, why wouldn't you want pain relief? And that's not, that's not mm. going to happen. It takes hours and days normally. Um, and so I knew a lot more about what to expect and how to keep myself calmer. But even though I had all those techniques and knowledge, I was still um, at one point the consultant came in and said, your heart, because they monitor um, for an induction, they monitor you and they monitor the baby. They said my heart rate was so high that it had merged with the baby's and the baby, the baby's heart rate was like 160 beats per minute. <laughs> so they were like, you have, to, yeah, you have to do something to calm down. You have to slow, you have to slow down. Yeah. Um, what you said earlier about, um, the, you said earlier about the sort of, you know, mind and body being in, in sync. And so anxiety is going on and so your body reacts. And, and that sounds, um, you know, sounds pl totally plausible and understandable. You also said about um, effects on yeah. partners and, and husbands and, you know, boyfriends and whatever. So do you mind me asking, you know, what was the effect on your partner? I mean, he was just terrified as well. Um, when we went, because mm. for partners, I think especially for male, sorry, you can probably hear my daughter screaming in the background. Um, for male partners, there's absolutely no support when people are people don't say how are you they say how's your partner they're just like a vessel and it's just not really fair um but and also for the male partner or for the partner you, you have to be strong well s word again for your partner but actually who who are you able to lean on so he was scared too and um, he was he's a lot more level-headed than i am but I could see the moments where it would just get too much for him as well. When we had that first scan, he said afterwards he couldn't look at the screen. But then afterwards, we kind of both got really into it because we said, well, we didn't know what the outcome of the birth, you know, the previous two pregnancies hadn't worked out. So we just wanted to really memory make. And so we made a whole yeah. ritual of, OK, well, we're going to have something nice to eat. And then that would kind of be be our focus as well and he really focused on doing up the house as well I think having an activity to do was absolutely great and he had his brother um but he could talk to as well but it's really quite an isolating experience because unless you've gone through that there are very few people that people got that it would be a stressful situation for the pair of us um but I think as well not meaning to stereotype but I had being female, I was quite comfortable talking about how I felt, and I kind of knew at that point as well who would be, um, who'd be wanting to have those conversations. Whereas I think it's a little bit different for men as well. So it, it was not, yeah. um, it was yeah. not a relaxing, <laughs> a relaxing experience. But he was really amazing as well because I would just be like, I'm worried about the baby's movements. Um, I've only counted like fifty in in two minutes, which is normal. Um, which is a lot, and. And um, they, he would be the one that would drive me to hospital. So, in a lot of ways, he was able to take on the hero role, um, which I definitely needed because I didn't have the energy. Um, and he, 
I could see the fear in his eyes when we would have so when thankfully I could feel my daughter moving so I knew that everything was fine but um it sometimes take them the midwives a while to locate where the baby actually is and that's hugely triggering for someone that's gone through baby loss where they haven't been able to find the heartbeat and um I could see the fear in his eyes but I could also see how resolved he, he was trying to be on the surface for me um but he was the one that was yeah. like what do you want yeah. I'll get get you it blah, blah, blah. but also when you're at the hospital like funny things happen you see really weird things at hospitals or on the way to the hospital and so they were just focusing on those little things that kind of broke that momentum of anxiety that was really important and for I think always for founders of charities or for you you set up a CIC and, and it was a, it's a social enterprise um and and they do it from a life experience, you know, where that's loss, um, quite often loss actually, um, and it, it's one of those things when you when you set up the charity, you I think you indicated that you were you weren't sure whether you were ready or do, did you on reflection do do you think you're ready to to go in and and sort of you know be with um, women who've gone through the same thing. Um, how was how it setting up the charity from that perspective? Because, you know, you're, mm. each day, all that content, you're facing loss, aren't you? Like it's continually coming up in whatever you write, whoever you yeah. talk to, talking to funders. <laughs> I mean, um, definitely when I had the miscarriage, I did wonder what what I would have to admit. And there were certain things that I did just step back from. I was really lucky in that, my bereavement therapist she used to work for charities and she did a lot of career coaching as well and she would often often our sessions would then merge into career coaching and um she linked me up to an incredible woman called Francine Bates who had just left the lullaby trust as a CEO and she linked me up to Francine and Francine was just amazing and I mean after the miscarriage as well I um kind of so that happened in the February and then in the March, I just kind of thought, you know what, screw it. Um, this this is my life and I just want it to be as happy as possible. And um, it just something psychologically just changed in me because I wasn't sure if I was going to have a child. And I thought if I couldn't have a biological child of my own, would I still be happy? And the answer was yes. Like there were, obviously I will always miss my son. However, there was just a mindset shift in my energy. And so I met with Francine. She was just incredible. She linked me up to so many other baby loss founders and CEOs. Um, she put me on the all party parliamentary group for baby loss, like group, basically. So then I could attend the meetings in parliament, which felt really fancy. And it kind of still is. Um, and so I was just immediately, very quickly networking with all of the other founders and one of the questions that I asked them was how do you manage the triggers and they all gave different bits mm. of advice like some were when it gets too much just close your laptop and don't do anything for a few days you're only accountable to yourself and that hearing that you're only accountable to yourself that was really key because it was like well actually yeah that, that is a good one to hear because you kind of think oh it's my project I have to do x I have to do y and you don't you really don't most of the time um and then I would ask others and they were like, when you would sense that would happen, just put up barriers and then just you'll learn how to do it. And that was absolutely true. I, I 
the biggest my biggest trigger was probably myself in that there were some bits of content creation that I should not have focused on when I was pregnant like writing a birth plan for stillbirth I probably shouldn't have done that but it's done and I remember when it was done but there were quite a lot of creative elements that I could focus on so in terms of the business development I needed to focus on what kind of business I wanted to do and wanted to run and then exploring that the branding was a huge thing for me because I really wanted the feel of the website and every single element to feel like your conversation with your favorite aunt that's left you feeling quite nurtured and comforted because quite a lot of baby loves material as you said it can be triggering yeah. um and i don't i want the opposite of that i want people to feel comforted even from the logo so that was really nice to just focus on the logo have different people feedback onto that and um, there was several hundred versions of the logo I and mean, then obviously ended up with the first one i ever focused on um and that was really the branding was like that took a huge amount of time um and then there was the website development and i had it was just by chance um my neighbor who is an amazing website designer her name's polly vickery and she her son and her husband died in an accident it was absolutely awful and horrible so i'd somehow found someone that absolutely got grief like more like you know she absolutely got it and she helped co-design the feel of the website she just mm. understood and um, she was really really key I mean she kind of put the building blocks in place but the website was like such a beast to do so in terms of the content um even now I'm still working at the website but the SEO as well that took probably 70% of my time so it wasn't actually anything to do with with baby loss it was like long-term search no it was building building a business and um yeah search engine optimization and so on the one thing i was going to ask you actually yeah. in terms of the naming of it um so um in terms of you know kind of keeping buddy at the forefront was there a temptation to to call the charity after name it after no CIC um, after when i set it up so two and a half years had passed and when um i first lost him i just want to talk about the experience all the time because that was the only way I could talk about him whereas as more experiences has, have happened I kind of want to keep that to myself so I didn't necessarily like my view is to certainly develop something but I don't want to get founder's syndrome and I know that I won't be working on this forever and ever and ever because I'll need someone else to come in to elevate it and take it to the next stage at some point and so I didn't necessarily want it to want like want to name it after him because as like he's my child and I don't want the world to necessarily it's really hard to articulate because I wanted the world to know his name beforehand. I, I yeah, just, I mean I you know, in the same way yeah. people don't share mm. pictures of their children online. Um or I haven't I've noticed that I haven't actually I took quite a long time to say Buddy's name in this podcast and I'm happy to say his name but I also haven't said my daughter's name which is maybe a bit hypocritical so um it's more the essence of him um there there is actually an, an app called Birth Buddy which I was initially thinking of but I I was really struggling with a name so there's a Japanese philosophy called Kintsugi and it was really um comforting during grief and essentially if for example a vase breaks and smashes on the floor instead of picking it up and putting it in the bin which you know you do 
you'd glue it back together but with golden glue so that you could see the break and that that golden bond becomes the most beautiful part of the vase and that's really key and so mm. that is essentially the essence of my organization to celebrate that golden bond that you know you've experienced yeah. something like something my bereavement counselor said I could walk down the street and no one in a million years would would ever think what I've gone through as with anyone else whereas you kind of want to wear your heart on your sleeve with baby loss to an extent and so I really struggled because I was like I can't call it kintsugi because no one's going to remember it because it's a Japanese word and uh, I was walking <laughs> along it was actually with my um, I, I used to manage events in my last role and um, it was with my event co coordinator and I said, oh, I'm really struggling. And I, she absolutely got, well, we work, we work together really, really well anyway. And she absolutely got what I was wanting. I mean, she sent me a text and she said, my um, brother's girlfriend's family, someone's just had a baby and they've called the baby Nova and it means new star. And I was like, oh, yeah, but it just, it just worked That's immediately. It. And so mm. it was actually from uh, Danielle. Um, that I hi Danielle if you're listening um, it was actually from Danielle and she was just amazing <laughs> and she's been like an incredible like I've sent her the logo and she's been um really invaluable um in terms of that I just needed someone that was not so close to it that was outside but still that was really creative to just come up with that and yeah, um yeah. yeah then you've got to, to do the the kind of unsexy stuff of like seeing if that website already exists and nova.org.uk um, does already exist but not it's just one of those websites where someone's bought it and no one actually has a website that name so that's why I had to add the foundation element um and to it which is interesting when I was trying to register because you've got to then prove you've got to add certain words to say that if you're a foundation that you would reinvest the funds which I would do um but yeah that there was quite a lot that went into all of that point but it's just wonderful that I, I had someone in my life that absolutely yeah. got it and then came up and it was just like I just I, yeah. I didn't even bother exploring any any other terms after that I can't even remember what the previous ones were yeah yeah no that's a that's a lovely name um so in terms of what you mm -hmm. deliver um so you know you you a big focus on um, on you know walking the path mm -hmm. of baby loss, and, so, and no no parent will will walk mm -hmm. alone. I think that's what you talk about in in, in your materials. Um, and so, it's antenatal educator, hypnobirther, um, you've kind of got information that people can access, which is great. And then there's experiential stuff that they can um, take mm -hmm. on board as well. Um, what are, the, what are the aims? Pregnant and did not want to really do that much work with a newborn. I actually did end up doing some. And just through the experience of being pregnant after a loss and parenting after a loss, because that's quite a big thing in itself, um, we still integrate our son's memory into our lives. And it also affects our... I know every new parent is paranoid, but when you've experienced a loss, you're really ultra heightened. Um, and so yeah. what I'm doing at the moment and what I'll be doing in the next few weeks is filming um, an amazing British organisation called Unlimited, who funds social enterprises, gave me a little bit of funding um, 
I actually pitched to them the week before I gave birth and it was for face-to-face antenatal classes, but then COVID came along. And so I spoke to them and said, do you mind if I use the funding um, to film classes instead? And they were amazing. They were like, yep, go ahead. And so I've got a film filmmaker on board. I've got a bereavement midwife from Homerton Hospital, Hospital, Megan, an amazing doula. A doula is a birth worker called Mars Lord. And they're all going to be involved in the filming as well. The idea is that I will eventually add other elements, like a GP's perspective, et cetera, et cetera. But for the moment, like you, in the UK, there are no hospitals that are running antenatal classes. Um, and if you've been pregnant after a loss, just regular antenatal classes are just not appropriate. Like you say what happened to you and the air just gets sucked out of the room and you don't want to feel even more of a pariah, whereas having baby loss specific classes there's like one one midwife who provides women reading but there's nothing nationwide so i'll be developing that um sans the charity have been um still with charity absolutely amazing um in terms of their support Mm. i've met with their ceo clear harmer and um their program manager i think that's what her title is claire wargan and they gave me loads of pointers in terms of what I could be running. So I'm going to be looking at possibly running a video course, but then having live drop-ins once a week. Um, and I'll be testing that to see how that works and who I need to get on board with that. Working out price points as well, eventually developing a parenting after a loss course, but that that will come after everything. One other thing that I'm doing as well as part of Nova is I've been working with Newham CCG and part of the North East London Hospital Trust. Um, so basically, when a woman um, is pregnant, they will and has a baby that they get to take home. Um, there's quite a lot of funding that's pumped into perinatal mental health. That does not, baby loss does not come under that at all, which is quite shocking. Um, and I've met with Newham and they've been really receptive to actually having that patient insight and they very aware of what I do as well. And so um, they put in a bid for, I think they're called maternity mental health clinics. And the focus was on baby loss, kind of based on what I've been speaking about with you. And that's brilliant. And they've got the funding. And so they're developing that. So another element of Nova will be working with Newham to see, well, to keep on providing that patient perspective of what's actually going to work and they've been brilliant i've been really surprised by how helpful that trauma people will be experiencing with everyday stuff you know from um you know antenatal classes and and interactions with hospitals and just you know there's a lot of anxiety and stuff around there at the moment anyway um how have, how have you found lockdown? Because um, you're like Britain for the context, what we're recording this, you know, a few days after Britain's gone into lockdown. Um, Tara's already, already told me she's already had COVID, <laughs> so she's got immunity. Well, we're not, we, we, haven't, we, we haven't got that confirmed, but um, what's, the, what's the Arnold health like in, in lockdown? Like we had a script, we have we, had a bit of tension throwing in, we, in, in the making of this podcast, but not from you. Um, yes, <laughs> I mean, the second lockdown is a bit easier than the first one because the first one we were literally being told, oh, you could walk past someone who, who sneezes in the air and then, you know, you walk through it and you can catch it or 
you know, you, you could catch it from, like, it was just like this 28 days later horrible thing, which just made you too terrified to leave the house. And then there'd be people that would be like three meters away, be like, oh my God, I'm going to catch it and die. Whereas this time it, it feels, I mean, I wish we went into lockdown a couple of weeks ago, like all of the health experts advised, and then it would have only been two weeks long, but it is what it is. I mean, ultimately we still need to leave the house to go to the shop to get food and um, whereas the first time we were like just not we weren't hoarding that's absolutely the wrong term but we were going through all of our supplies um in our cupboard and just finding things that were we didn't even know we had and just making quite creative sometimes disgusting but sometimes nice meals whereas now it's just like oh let's just go to the shop to go out because we need to and as well as the baby's getting a bit bigger you just sometimes you just sometimes practically just need to go out um so there's less fear which is good yeah. um thankfully in the uk baby well i go to a baby sensory class and that's exempt because the government are still continuing to run, well, allowing classes that are support for parents to run, which is brilliant. And that, that's been a bit of a lifesaver because I did just think, oh, my gosh, this is going to be quite tough to not have any outside support during this time. But also my daughter's nine months old. It's important for her to actually engage with other children Um and so that it's not as it is what it is. It's not as bad. I suspect that lockdown will continue until the week before Christmas and then we'll be allowed to have Christmas. And then, you know, who knows what will happen next year. But um, there was like an announcement. It was like things should be normal by spring. And it's like spring's six months away. What? Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. We're, we're pretty laid back. We've downloaded like loads of channels. Like we'll be getting Brick Brock soon, and then um, we've got Disney Plus. So we've, uh, you know, we're all right. People, I think it would be worse if it was a summer because people kind of start hibernating in the winter anyway, and it probably it probably doesn't really make that much difference, Mark, because we've got a small child, so we don't go out anywhere anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, know that feeling. Um, and, you know, I think Brits generally are pretty positive people and, um, you know, winter is a buckling down time anyway and, you know, Christmas is a huge focus. So as long as the, the British people can have Christmas together, I think that's that will be um, some sort of victory. Um, a real absolute pleasure to speak to you tonight and reconnect after all these years. Um, thank you, Mark. Take uh, care. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.